Hello everybody, welcome to today's edition of the Dharma Toolkit Daily Podcast with me Chandradasa and the fabulous team who you will meet in a little second. This is a new week of podcasts. We're going to be jumping around thematically a little bit, but one of the things that we'll be picking up on is just around sources of inspiration, how to stay connected to your valuable sources of inspiration as the world goes increasingly a little bit crazy every day. And it's easy to become unmoored, untethered from your sense of normal reality, whatever that is. We are, in a way, picking up on some of the themes from last week's podcast around what you can cultivate in the face of challenges like the coronavirus crisis, generosity of heart, generosity of spirit, generosity of mind, and creativity just being one of the things that helps helps you, helps other people. We're going to be doing some exploring of that in the good company as ever of my friends and colleagues, Sadaya Sihi and Kusla Devi, who's the newest member of our team here, which is fab. So how are you doing, Sadaya Sihi? So I'm well. I'm really happy that Kusla Devi has joined our team, which she did on Thursday last week, just in time for the home retreat on the Sailing the Worldly Winds. So she's really jumped in at the deep end. Yeah, and it's been a busy time these past few days. We've had Sadra Gupta's Q&A around the theme of Sailing the Worldly Winds yesterday, which was very inspiring, actually. Really, really great conversation, really good questions. And there's also been other online events, which I was dipping into at the weekend. There was an ordination taking place at the London Buddhist Centre, which was live streamed. So it was very exciting to be able to participate or just even to witness that. And then also there was an order meditation practice taking place yesterday as well, which I took part in. One of the sits was led by someone in India, an order member in India, which was very, very moving, actually. Just I felt like we had a little window into his world. Yeah, so lots of good things happening. And I said, delighted that Kusla Davies joined us. This is where I get to put you on the spot. Kusla Davies, how was your first few days at Dharma Chakra? Oh, it was great, actually. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I've started two new Tree Ratna jobs in two weeks with Future Dharma and with you at the Buddhist Centre Online. And uh, it's been really inspiring, I think. Well, yeah, the work last week, reflecting on that material from Vajragupta, you know, it didn't feel like work, actually. It very much felt like practice so it was really lovely to have a sort of specific theme to be reflecting on and just sort of turning over a bit more consciously in my mind so yeah I've really enjoyed that yes so my life feels full but yeah I definitely do feel in touch with sources of inspiration because of that at the moment and I also was watching and taking part in the ordination yeah taking part in the puja on the Sunday morning it was really moving I wasn't sure how it was going to be watching a public ordination live streamed on YouTube and I just found myself feeling very devotional and just wanting to join in the puja and I did feel like there was a real sense of sangha with all these messages sort of coming up from people all around the world yeah it's very moving and both of you have been providing sources of inspiration for other people during the week by blogging your experience of taking part in the home retreat which personally I've loved it's really been nice waking up in the mornings here in America and seeing today's reflection it's also nice seeing people reflect on somebody else's reflections. You kind of get the sense of mirrors reflecting each other and these kind of different angles of light that come out of different minds engaging with the same sort of process of material. It's really lovely. And I suspect we're going to get a similar experience talking to our guest today about sources of inspiration. He is a painter, working artist. He's also somebody who sets up beautiful conditions for people to practice. He lives at a Buddhist retreat centre in the heart of England in the middle of an English spring, which sounds like a very nice place to self-isolate. Welcome to Bayavadra. Hello, thank you, Chandra Dasa. Hello, welcome to, well, my very tiny 
little temporary studio at the heart of Vadrasana. As you say, I think I'm extremely fortunate to have to isolate myself in such beautiful conditions, really. You know, that's an issue for reflection, really. I'm kind of well aware how difficult and challenging a lot of people are having to live in, you know, and deal with at the minute. I'm living in six acres of very beautiful retreat centre with three other guys here who are the team at Vadrasana. Yeah, full-on English spring, beautiful, beautiful blossoms in full bloom. And no retreatants to see it. So that is very sad, but, you know, and we are here a beneficiary of all of that. And who is it you live with? What's the community made up of at a retreat centre? For people who don't know our community and who may not even know what it's like to run a retreat centre, to live at a retreat centre, what was the day-to-day like? These days, for many years, I lived here more or less single-handedly, looked after Vadrasana, I wouldn't say run it, but looked after it on a practical level. And then we had a big redesign, rebuild of the retreat centre in, well, it's finished 2016, I think. And since then, there's been a team, I've stayed on living here, and there's a team of three guys here, Yana Ruchi, Sadakatu, and... Dreda Karim, who just run the retreat centre. They do a remarkable job doing that. And just very generously, the London Buddhist Centre has just allowed me to carry on living here, which is what I've been doing. The retreat centre here can have up to 60 people. There's two solitary retreat facilities. Again, very beautiful. So, yeah, it's not an advert to come here right at the minute, but as soon as all this madness is over, anyone who hasn't been here, and comes will be in for a treat, I think. I like the idea of you as the sort of custodian of beauty at Vadrasana. I'm just looking at you in your studio. Of course, people listening won't be able to see this, although maybe we can get a picture. But the painting behind you is a very nice backdrop. Can you tell us something a little bit about that painting? Ah, well, you see, yeah, I've moved. For the last three years, I've been working in a pretty large studio, a warehouse in an industrial estate next to the railway line. It's about as urban as Suffolk gets, I think, actually. But it's a 25-minute drive away, and I haven't been able, obviously, to feel that it's justified in driving backwards and forwards to the studio. So I've now moved into a tiny little space, really, which I've managed to make usable. I've just adapted a greenhouse here that's part of the buildings at Vadrasana. I think coincidentally or serendipitously, I had just started working on a series of much smaller paintings than I usually do. So I had a start on what I was doing and the size I was working on just enabled me to make a transition over here quite easily, actually. So I'm not doing the 25 minute there and back drive. Yeah, I'm sitting here able to look out the windows at the grounds here at Vadrasana which is very different. So I'm waiting to see how that plays out, what effect that has actually on my work. Yeah. So the paintings I've been working on, what you all see, and the people listening won't be able to, of course, but it's uh, just the start of a process of building a painting up, actually. Yeah. And I don't know where it's going to end up yet myself at the minute. I imagine I'm particularly aware of you as a painter. It feels like a luxury in a way to have a painter with us on the podcast. I feel like I want to ask you about your specific sources. Gosh, there's so many things you could talk about in a single episode of a podcast about painting and about art. The things that are coming up for me in the moment are just, well, partly a sense of what's the journey been like as an artist to kind of move into a life centred on the practice of the Dharma. 
and the kind of holding of ideas of beauty in a particular context, perspectives on reality. And being a working artist, being someone who's making work in a kind of quite directed, disciplined way. What's that been like as a mix of two different disciplines or two different aspects? Or do they feel like the same aspect of practice? And maybe also, what are your sources of inspiration? Who are your sources of inspiration? What's the lineage of painting you see yourself in? That feels like that's the direction that my life's going in, how to integrate and synthesise two, well, ongoing themes in my life. I mean, I trained as an artist, as a painter, and I worked in various ways, painting, exhibiting, teaching, working in the theatre for 20, 25 years of my adult life. And then when I first went to the London Buddhist Centre in 1990, I stopped. I stopped. I was stopped by serious illness to start with. And I kind of was, in a way, so inspired at the time in that sort of, you know, very new way that one can be of meeting the Dharma that I stopped painting. And then (laughs) 20 15, 20 years of working at the London Buddhist Centre, being here at Vadrasana, slowly what came to me was a kind of very strong desire to try and bring together those two streams of inspiration. So, I mean, as an artist, I could be here all day as a painter, talking about the painters that I kind of respond to and (laughs) really, in a way, the whole history of I love painting. I've always loved painting. I love paint. You know, you'll see me at an art gallery with my nose as close as the security will let me to the painting in order to just to see, I don't know, the sensuous plastic experience of paint being handled and colour, you know, coloured stuff being handled. So I've always that, but I've always, since 1990, felt I very much needed a practice. I needed more practice of sangha, less self-isolating as one does in the studio, quite naturally. And that dropped away. But bringing those two things together, I mean, my Dharma inspiration, yeah, was going on the treat. It's funny, just seeing the ordination, I followed the live stream of Stiromanus's ordination. And that just brought back an inspiration, just reminding me of ordination, my own ordination. I suppose the imaginative and the mythic aspects of ordination that were always very strong for me, the symbolism, the ritual, the myth, if you like, associated with the Dharma. How to bring those two things together. That's what I decided I wanted to try and do, but I wanted to try and do it without going easy on either of those two things. What would happen if I was fully immersed and connected with my if you like, my inspiration or my heritage, my conditioning as a Western artist, but also be a Dharma practitioner. So what would come out of that? For me, for me, I can see what happens for other people. I couldn't see, this is going back about eight years now, I think, when I really started out on this, the opportunity to retire from Vajrasana has enabled me to just really try and explore that as fully as I can. I always had a sense of a danger for me that I wanted to try and avoid, which was, I don't know, make too quick and superficial a synthesis between those two things and to also not feel that I was appropriating the Dharma, like hanging it on my painting in order to, I don't know, give it some spurious profundity or whatever it was. 
I think that's always something to be looked out for, and I'll probably do it sometimes in my own head, but it's something I want to be aware of. My painting isn't overtly dharmic. I mean, I'm not painting Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. I'm not sure I'd know how to do that. I will just say my painting, I say, is probably comes across as abstract to do with energy and colour and interrelationship of form. I'm not quite sure why, but it reminds me of, there's a quote by Mark Strand, the American poet, when somebody was talking to him about, again, the relationship between poetry and suffering. And he says one of the jobs of the poet is not to, he doesn't want to busk his grief. <laughs> this, this idea of like trying to hang, you know, hang your art from on yeah. the kind of suffering that everybody has. I know I can sort of relate to that, I think, yes. And I don't find whatever other grief and suffering and Dukkha is in my life, and there are aspects of it sometimes, particularly at the minute. I seem to have got myself to a place where the actual process of an act of painting is pretty joyful, actually, which is quite something I never quite expected. That was full of angst when I was younger. That was what art, genuine, true art, had to express. It had to express suffering in the world. Otherwise, it wasn't expressing a truth. But I seem to be finding something other than that, actually. Maybe this question is not really answerable just yet, but I've just been wondering, hearing you speak, I'm not an artist myself, not a painter. I don't know how long the process of creating a painting takes. So as I said, maybe this is a premature question, but I'm just wondering if this situation, this unusual situation, we find ourselves in this global crisis, isolation and being cut off from other people physically, whether this is having an impact on your painting or even in terms of your artistic process. Maybe you haven't noticed yet. Know. It is, yeah. <laughs> in a true sense, that isn't answerable, I know, but I have to say that personally, and, you know, I almost want to apologise for saying this, but just very personally, in terms of my work and the painting at the minute, it isn't making a difference. In fact, I have been usually spending most of my working days isolated in my studio by myself very happily. Now, at the minute, because of the situation, I'm back at Vadrasana with the other three guys that live here and work here. So I feel almost less isolated at the minute. And actually, I'm kind of enjoying that. Well, I have quite a stronger developing sense of community that's here, actually, as well. Yeah. How that will play out in my work, I don't know. The paintings I'm doing now, I'm just following, continuing a theme that I started just before this all kicked off. Yeah, so I was just wondering whether that, yeah, whether that sense of connection and friendship and community, do you think that is going to feed into your work in some way or will time tell? Yes, you're right. Time will tell. It feels to me that the work I've been doing in the last two or three years almost seems to just sort of happen despite what's going on, certainly despite what's going on in my life and how I'm feeling. It feels like there's something objective going on in the painting. So I get to the studio and I start work. And in a way, I'm applying fairly crazy methods, but I'm applying methods and processes and being surprised at best by the outcome of you know what happens at the end of the process. So I never really know what the outcome is going to be. I think everything does feed in, but I'm just allowing it. It's all the conditions that have their effect on me. And so therefore, something must change in the relationship between me and the paint and the canvas. But I'm waiting to find that out, really. I think 
as time goes on with my sort of Buddhist practice and being in more positive conditions, what does happen is that I'm more able to, in my own work, in my own creativity, able to manage myself, my own psyche, my own responses and reactions. So I'm able to not worry too much about outcomes and just go with the processes and see what's happened. So less angst and anxiety in my case when it comes to the work. And sometimes the paintings work, sometimes they don't. Quite often these days they do and that's good enough for me. But I don't worry about the outcomes. So that's my practice, actually. I've got no idea, but I suspect, yes, it must have some effect. We will see. One of the questions about Badger that comes up here when you say that, particularly thinking about people who don't make art as a practice, they may have a strong appreciation of art and it may inspire them. There's a famous poem by Yeats about why people need paintings. You know, mm. want to see the municipal art gallery subscribe to. Can you articulate something around what it is about the sort of plasticity of working with paint that feels like an appropriate response to reality, to dukkha, to suffering, right? And why in a way that feels like the process of doing that, whether the painting works or not, what does that mean? All of that stuff, what's the response? Yeah, I can respond on two levels. On one level, now this is to make no comparison between the circumstances now and the First World War, (laughs) and to make no comparison between me and Monet, but Monet during the whole course of the First World War just worked away painting those series of giant water lily paintings, you know, which are incredibly popular. Well, and moving more than just popular paintings for people now. He said he saw art as ameliorative. It was healing. And he said, when all this is over, mankind's going to need some healing and art is going to be part of that. So that's, if you like, on a slightly more theoretical level. But I think there is that answer, one answer to the relevance or the appropriateness of art and practising art to difficult circumstances and suffering. So that's a sort of rather more abstract answer. For myself, painting process, for me, it feels like I'm maybe, I'm a bit like an archaeologist. I'm putting paint on rather than scraping stuff away, but I'm doing something that seems to be revealing something. And the way the process, the way a painting comes into being, to me, says something about the way everything comes into being, how everything emerges and how we define ourselves and define its aspects in relationship to ourselves. Just the act of painting. I think this is outside of whether the painting's good or bad, which might be another question. But the act of painting reveals to me something about the nature of reality. It's the interconnectedness of everything, how colours interrelate and change each other, depending on their particular relationships. How you can't change one small part of a painting without the whole changing, forming new relationships. So although a painting ends up as being a static thing you put on the wall, it seems that that static thing is the result of a whole process of changing, constantly changing elements, interconnected elements. And then when you look at the painting, that process of change, that process of flow, if you like, is re-stimulated in the viewer's consciousness or something. Anyway, that's it's a bit of a ramble off the top of my head, but it's very difficult to pin down in words. But in terms of whether I think a painting I've done works or not, all I can say is I look at one and I say, that looks real. It looks real. <laughs> yeah.
And I'm not even sure what that means, but I know I know it when I see it. And then sometimes the painting, it doesn't look real. It doesn't look finished. It looks like there's too much thought in it. It looks like it's too self-conscious. It hasn't completed itself. Mm. That's really interesting. It's just when you're talking about sort of allowing process and that flow, and I'm just sort of hearing you say in a way you're sort of getting yourself out of the way and just allowing that process. And I was just thinking that's very much what many of us are having to practice at the moment. It's like things are just changing so much day by day, hour by hour. And there's something about like if we resist that, then it can cause us more suffering so I don't know I've noticed in my own experience I am just having to allow that process and just sort of go with what's happening and just respond in the best way possible just respond as best as I can to these changing conditions this sort of flow yeah absolutely yes it feels like that's the ideal response to all experience you know I mean I've been talking about it in terms of it's a bit like meditation. Being in the studio is like meditation. It feels like it's a bit of a focused, pared down, almost like a laboratory, not in a cold way, but you get to see things and your response to things a bit more clearly, hopefully. And yes, that response is necessary to all things. To be over-concerned about expectations and outcomes. You know, we live our lives so much like that most of the time. The familiarity of life and its routines, yeah, creates that sense of safety and security. But ultimately, things change and things change when they change in a big way. We have to kind of learn, if we can, with kindness to ourselves, just to to let go, as you say, and just allow the process of life to go on, flow on. Yeah. One thing I've just really struck by when you were talking there, your first point, the one you said was a little bit more abstract about painting being kind of something that can be healing. Well, I just think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we can often be very utilitarian about everything, really, and get overly focused in on the practical response to this and whether that's the social distancing or whether that's face masks or whatever it is. But there's another sort of strain of experience that's really, really important, which is that sort of beauty. I'm thinking in terms of what Sangharaksha talks about, the greater mandala of uselessness, which is obviously in a very positive sense of not being utilitarian, not having everything to have even a monetary value to it. Because one of the things I've really been appreciating this past while is I've, every day I've been having my daily walk in this local park and I've been just thanking in my mind whoever idea it was to have public parks that we can walk around because Right now, I can't get to an art gallery or Mm. this is my art gallery at the moment is going around those public parks. And it is really healing. Actually, that's what I found is spending some time in the beautiful surroundings has made an incredible difference to my spirits, to my mood, my ability to connect with other people. So, yeah, I just think it was a really important point that you made about, well, I'm just thinking of Monet painting those beautiful lilies. It kind of almost seems like counterintuitive and yet instinctively it also feels right, you know, that, that someone would do that. Yeah, I think it probably takes courage to do that, you know, in the face of what the normal response to something like the First World War is or even the present circumstances. Yeah, and I think nature and art, you know, and art in its widest sense, of course, music in particular, literature, film, everything. It gives you something, but it's not something you can own and get hold of. I think it feeds and nurtures from the outside. This is something that we really do need. 
And maybe in present circumstances when our experience is limited, we just appreciate and we can just appreciate that more. There's a whole bunch of things set off, like beautiful cascading images in my mind and listening to you talk, which I could do all day about about art and painting. Particularly this thing about flowers, just, you know, almost like flowers are the only response to levels of suffering that are almost inconceivable. Thinking of the poppies in the First World War, the nephias, the lilies that money paints as the kind of act of courage. And even your walks, Dicey, just in a public park, just the forethought that people need beauty. I'm just aware of where you're located. You talked about it a bit at the start of Bayabhadra, in the heart of an English spring. It's almost like you're in an orchard painting. I'm assuming that is quite a strong aspect of your experience, is going back to the Buddha saying that the nature of reality is shubha, is beautiful. When you see it, you're in an actual experience or environment or mental ecosystem of beauty. I'm assuming that there is some connection for you between being just located in the heart of a season and how you choose to respond. Yes, I think so. One thing I had to learn to do, I moved to Vadrasana from London, from East London at the London Buddhist Centre in 2001. One thing I had to do was to learn to appreciate it all year round, not just when the blossom was as it is now, it's, it's bursting forth and the sun shining or whatever. But in winter too, I learned to appreciate you know, the patterns of different bare branches of trees against the sky. I had to appreciate the weather, you know, that came in all its not always perfect forms according to what I wanted. So it's about being receptive, I think. And I think as I, I'm 70, I turned 70 in November. Actually, that's an issue for me. The age 70 comes up, you know, in terms of I'm in a particular category now. So apparently, according to, you know, the official guidelines. But as one is more and more aware of the preciousness of time and the opportunity we have, one asks, what are you going to give your attention to? What are you going to spend your time contemplating and thinking is it going to be you know one's self-centered anxieties and fears and well yes we have those but they're going to be more receptive more receptive to the beauty that's round about you know I think that can still be found it's easy here but it's harder in cities I know but maybe that's where art in cities comes in so the art galleries are closed but they won't always be closed there's the opportunity Something's just came to mind, which was a little thing. Dennis Potter, the playwright who died, I can't remember when, but a few years ago, he wrote quite a lot of stuff and he wrote while he was in Dying of Cancer. And I think the thing he wrote on the last day of his life was writing about the blossom outside his window. And I can't remember the quotes, but he ended up by saying, never has it seemed so intensely beautiful, the blossom, as today when I'm going to die this very day so we need to seize the opportunity and just engage with what's around with us as fully as we can as fully as we can mm, thanks for that thanks for bringing it back to blossom that yeah, it's, quote is, it's very beautiful isn't it yeah and very strong but he was so present at the end of his life to give that gift to people just that evocation of what's coming in through his senses and how he responds to it so I'd like to thank you, Bhai Vajra, for your time today. Let's make an excuse for another conversation sometime later <laughs> during the crisis. Okay. I think we're going to need more of your blossoms later. Okay. So. They won't be there later. Mm, but let's have some of your bare branches yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, folks. Thank you for visiting me, at least in sound, in my wee little temporary studio in Vajrasana. 
yeah and thanks for listening to my thoughts and thanks for your encouragement for people to engage as anyone listening to this who's listened before will know that there's a lot you can engage with online mainly in a way just to give you roots back into that sense of beauty and connection should you lose them during the stresses and strains of this you can meditate with people every day you can engage to whatever extent you're able with your busy life with Vajraguptas material on the home retreat, sailing the worldly winds through the ups and downs of life. There'll be lots of Dharma teaching online for you to connect with and lots of community, lots of voices and stories to hear. I'd like to thank both Kusla Devi and Stasihi for helping bring them to you every day. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, Abhay Vajra. Really appreciated that. And I'd just been out for a walk before I recorded the podcast and was really appreciating the buds of blossom just about to burst. But I think now after hearing from you, I'll be much more aware of them. So thank you very much. And I just echo that. Thanks very much, Abhay Vajra. There's really beautiful images that are kind of echoing in my mind. I seem to have this vague memory of someone telling me recently that some of the art galleries are now doing virtual tours. So I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think I might just see if that's possible because something about the painting and the way you describe painting is kind of very evocative. Maybe there'll be time to explore that a bit more. <laughs> so thanks. Yes, that's right. I think we talked in our very first podcast about the Hermitage Museum have a five and a half hour film up where you can walk around the Hermitage and see the whole museum with nothing else. <laughs> first thought would be who has time to do that and then it's like well we all have time to do that if we want to yeah so thank you too for tuning in listening to more of these kind of voices coming from our community binding everybody together hopefully with stories which is probably the best way to connect people up and yeah we look forward to staying in touch with you in whatever ways we can over the next weeks months Thanks again to Bhaya Badra for bringing just a little burst of beauty into the day. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye for now.